it's funny. We, we did Luke chapter one in two weeks. We're going to try to do chapter two this morning in one shot, but you know how this goes, right? The pastor's warning is like, we're, that's the goal. We'll see where we get to. Um, we'll see how loud the kids get and how desperate my wife is to get out of children's ministry this morning. Uh, but it's funny, chapter one, right, was all about Luke saying, hey, I'm writing this to show you guys that this is absolute truth, that there should be no doubt that historically this is real. This were, these were real events of the Savior Jesus coming to the earth, that God the Son has put on flesh, that he has been born, that he will be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so he's writing to prove that. And we remember that Luke was a physician. He was an educated dude. He wrote in real high class Greek for the first four verses of the book. But then he brought it down to common Greek for the rest of the book to show us that, hey, it's a very lofty thing we're talking about. But it's for common man. And man, if that doesn't hit us, I don't know. It hits me because I'm not some scholar. (laughs) I'm not some high lofty dude. But I know that the Lord has done lofty things and brought it down to even men like me even to people like us, right? And I hope that's not offensive. Sometimes it's been said people need to be offended because the gospel is offensive. And the reality is, man, we need a savior, amen? amen. And so what Luke is doing in this, in this book is he's gonna create a chronological order of the things that occurred in the life of Jesus. And in chapter two, by this point, we've seen that the proclamation that Elizabeth and Zechariah would be pregnant and they would have a son and it would be John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. And that was awesome news because that meant the Messiah was coming. If the forerunner is coming, so is the Messiah. And Mary was told, hey, you're going to miraculously conceive and you're going to have that, that, that virgin birth that brings forth the Messiah. And so chapter two, this is like the Christmas passage, right? I feel like we should be teaching this on Christmas, not in whatever month. What is it? February, the last day of February right now. So, um, but you read it and it's a reminder that we're not just, I guess it's something to remember. We're not just Eastern Christmas Christians. We should be celebrating the birth and coming of Jesus every day. And so what we're going to see in chapter two is that the Lord, his providence, man, right? Like his sovereignty, his ability and for lack of a better term, like his stubbornness in a good way, he's going to have his will. He's going to have it come to fruition. Our part is not that God get on our side, but that we get on God's side. Amen. And see, it was funny. I was here unpacking the pod when we first moved into the house a few weeks ago. And my father-in-law, Mario, who I love so dearly, I hope Mario's online so he can you know, give me some credit as a good son-in-law. So... Mario's awesome though. He's like a, a, a practical hero of the faith for me. Cause he just does like extraordinary things and like the ordinary things in extraordinary ways. Like that's what a Christian should be. Right. And he was here helping me unpack the pod. And I was like, man, I thought this would take like days, right? All of our stuff's in there. We're getting, you know, I'm like, it's only taking like an hour. I said, man, God must be on our side. And it was so funny. He stopped me and goes, no, 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 we're on God's side. And it was just so funny. It was so subtle. And it reminded me that so many times I think, well, when things are going good, it means that like God's on my side. But when things are going well, it's because I've stepped out in faith according to his word. And I'm actually just on his side. If you remember when Joshua had the angel of the Lord, right? He walks up. He's like, you want you for us? Or you against us? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, you need to figure out who I am and get on my side essentially, right? And see the promises in this book are if you get on my side, you trust in my promises and you walk in them, you're going to be blessed because those promises are going to come to fruition. So if you're at Luke 2, say I'm there. All right, awesome. Let's look at the first three verses and get some setting. We're going to see a couple things today. We're going to see the birth of the Savior. We're going to see the presentation of the Savior. And we're going to see the growth of the Savior, Lord willing, this morning. And so first three verses says, 
And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And so what I love here is that Luke is showing us a couple of things. He's giving us like real names of real people in real places. So this isn't a fairy tale. <laughs> you know, you, you think about Luke writing to Gentiles, right? He's trying to present that Jesus was complete man, but he was perfect and he was totally God. <laughs> and so what he's trying to say as a Gentile, he's like, look, at, we have our fables, right? We have our Zeus's and all these weird, I don't know all the names because they're missed, right? But whatever they are. We have all these weird gods and they're all intermingled and they're all made up. He says, I'm going to tell you about the true God that came in flesh at a real time. And I'm going to use your calendar and your systems to remind you of what was happening. And he says, Caesar Augustus was in charge and he ordered all of the world to be registered. And we read that and we go, well, how did he order the whole earth, right? Well, in their terminology, Rome was all that mattered. So when he says all the world, he means all the Roman world. And so that's how, like, these guys were proud, right? The Romans, man, they were in control. And under Caesar Augustus, he was the one that brought it really in this, like, serious time of peace through a lot of battle, through a lot of war. There was this temple. I think it was the Temple of Janus, I think it was. And they would open the doors when it was wartime. And it was pretty much that temple would be open all the time. But when Caesar Augustus got control, he actually was able to close those doors that represented there was peace during his time. So this guy was, he strong armed his way into peace, if that makes sense. Like that war brought peace. And it's important to know because it reminds us that if there's peace for Rome, that means that everyone's in submission to Rome, including the Jews. And see, when Luke's writing this, he's saying, man, remember, I may be a Gentile, but remember the Jews in this setting. Remember the Israelites, they're here thinking, Lord, when are you going to deliver us from Rome? That was what they wanted the Messiah for. They were thinking nationally, right? They were thinking like, man, God's going to send this deliverer, the lion of Judah, that's going to chop down Rome and we're going to be exalted, right? That was really what it came down to. It was, we want the power. They didn't understand that Jesus was coming the first time as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And we know he's going to come again as the lion, right? He's going to come, he's going to rule and reign. But the first enemy was that spiritual enemy of death, of sin, to deliver us from the lie, amen? And so... As he's telling us all these things, Luke says, look, there's this census that goes out. And it's funny, we're familiar with census in a lot of way. I don't know if it's sensei, censuses, I don't know, whatever it is. But you know what I'm referring to. When the, when the people come knock on the door and they take a population census to figure out how many people live where. And based on taxes, so they can get funding and whatnot. But in this case, the Greek says it was a taxing. So the idea was Rome says, hey, we're in power. We're in total power in this region. We better be getting paid by everyone because we're taking care of everyone. It's a way of, we know it's a way of flexing, right? To say, hey, I want to see how many people I have in my control. But also it's very practically like we want to make sure we're getting a piece of everyone's income. And this reminds me, right? I mean, I got a letter the, the other day. It was, thank the Lord. It wasn't a bad letter, but I got a letter and it was from the IRS. And I don't know if you guys, your heart sinks, right? You see that you're like, oh Lord, this is either good or bad, or maybe it's nothing. I don't know. But like, 
I got my stimulus check like back in a deposit back in like January. But since we moved, they had to forward the letter. So it got here late. So it's been like a month and a half since I got the deposit. So when I get a letter from the IRS, I'm not thinking it has anything to do with the stimulus. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to get audited. This is the, I don't even know. Like, you know, I think Matt showed me a meme the other day. Like basically the idea is the IRS says, hey, do you know how much you owe? So you guess at it, like based on their things, you're like, wrong, you go to jail now, right? <laughs> like that's terrifying. And so in this case, Rome was gnarly, right? Rome was like, look, you're going to come here and we're going to make sure we're getting everything that you owe us. And so you can understand why the Jews are like, man, this is a miserable time. We're in our own land, but this enemy is ruling over us. And yet, remember, for years, though, they've walked opposite the word of God. For years, they have walked away and turned their back on the things of the Lord. And the Lord, still in his goodness, says, I'm still going to fulfill these promises. You got to trust in me. And so that's what we see in these first three verses here. And look what it says, verse four through seven. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so now we're told some details about like the Christmas story, the famous Christmas story that we all know that, by the way, there's so many like misconceptions in like our nativity scene. We have the wise men there. They didn't show up for like two years later, right? There's little things like that. And it's just perfect, nice little wood manger. It's like, we're going to see that's not the case, right? But the point is that Jesus is on his way. Jesus is in the womb of Mary, right? And it's crazy though. You had a pregnant virgin, which that said would be the case for the Messiah in Isaiah 7, 14, right? Born of a virgin. So you had that messianic prophecy. But in Micah 5, 2, it said that Bethlehem would be the city that the Messiah would be born in. But here's the deal. So we had a pregnant virgin carrying the baby, but she's not in Bethlehem. How is she going to get to Bethlehem? Why would she go to Bethlehem? Here's this Roman enemy that's out here saying, hey, listen, you guys all got to go back to your city, wherever you're from. Rome, who thinks they're so strong, so mighty, so awesome, don't even know that they're getting played by the Lord in, kind of like in a certain way, right? I use that term loosely, but the providence of the Lord, he says, I said that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. How do I get you there? And see what would seem like, man, this is miserable. Lord, why do you have us traveling 80 miles with a pregnant woman? This isn't good, Lord. This isn't the plan. Like, we just want to stay here and, and, and nest, right? And he says, no, no, no. This is where the Messiah is to be born. Rome, you don't even know, issued the decree. And the reason they're going back, this is the other messianic prophecy. It says that it's the city of David. You see, we know that the Messiah had to be of the lineage of David. This note from Luke says that Joseph and Mary were both of the lineage of David. So if there are seeds of David, Mary in particular, because remember, Joseph's just a stepfather. God is the father of Jesus. Mary in particular, she's of the lineage of, of, of David. That means that her son will be as well. So now you're seeing the fulfillment of everything coming together. 2 Samuel 7, 16, Isaiah 11, 1. Um, they both told us that this is the case, that, that Jesus, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, of a virgin of the house and lineage of David. 
And so how incredible, right, that these prophecies, I mean, Isaiah was written 800 years before Jesus showed up. <laughs> I don't know about you. I don't know what I'm going to do in 800 minutes, right? Let alone 800 years. I'm not going to be doing anything in 800 years but praising the Lord, <laughs> but uh, Lord willing, right? Uh, but in 800 years, you couldn't predict anything. I think about technology, right? Like think of the last 10 years technology-wise, just the last 10 years. Like how far we've moved already. These are things like, hey, I'm going to have a specific thing happen that are absolutely miraculous things, by the way. That I'm going to fulfill my promise to David in the year 1000, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah in the year 700, to, that it would be of his line, to fulfill this prophecy that someone would be born in Bethlehem that's the Messiah to Micah 400, you know, 500 years ago. And all of it goes back, really, to Genesis 3, where God told, told Eve, hey, I'm going to put, well, told Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and her and your seed and her seed. He's going to crush your head. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And so for thousands and thousands of years, people have been waiting for him to show up. And here's the moment. And you got to think, if you put yourself in Joseph and Mary's shoes, you're like, Lord, why are you doing this to us? Why are you making us travel back to Bethlehem? And the reality is when they get numbered there, the reason they're going, I believe, specifically to the city of Bethlehem, this group, because it's been said that maybe some families just had to go back to like their, their town and register, but the line of David had to go to his town because Rome was watching for the Messiah. They had heard rumors that some guy was going to come and kill them. So like, wait, we're going to register the family of David real tight. They have to come to Bethlehem. We want to monitor them. We want to see what they look like. Does that make sense? And so here's Mary and Joseph like, all right, well, I guess we're going. Right? And praise the Lord, she didn't have the baby on the way or after they left Bethlehem. It had to happen at the perfect time or else the prophecy is not fulfilled. And so they go out there, they, they travel out, and now they're in the appropriate place. And it reminds me of Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. It says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so that we can receive the adoptions as sons and daughters, right? So this is the fullness of the time. Like this is the moment the Lord was waiting for. And everyone in history had no idea. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the, the, the Greeks, the Romans, they had no idea that the Lord was just like letting all this stuff play out in the perfect way so that this could be the moment that was the fullness of time. And I hope that's encouraging to you because I don't know about you, but there's times. I think you and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Like you just step out in faith. You're like, well, the Lord's called us to do something. I don't know why. It's not the easiest thing, but it's the thing we've been called to do. And here's the cool thing about Joseph and Mary. They just obeyed. It didn't mean they were, let's be clear. I don't think they were happy about having to go to Bethlehem. But they're like, well, we got to go, right? That's the reality. And what's going to happen? They're going to fulfill prophecy perfectly. Like that should be so exciting to us when we're going through like the mundane the things that were like, this is just everyday stuff, a census, <laughs> a register. This is boring stuff. The Lord's like, this ain't boring to me. I'm making things work out perfectly. Zechariah 4, 6, or I'm sorry, 410 says, for who has despised the day of small things? And see, that reminds me, we just got to obey the Lord and the small things, the big things, just be faithful to what he's calling us to. And so in this case, we see this, this humble, lowly scene. It says there's no room at the inn. This blows my mind, right? Because we're talking about Jesus. If anyone should be, have a room at the inn, it should be Jesus, the son of God. And if there's anyone you would assume would get a room at the inn through the power of God, it would be Jesus, right? 
But it shows us that the Lord doesn't care about the same kind of comforts that we care about. He cares about our character. He cares about truth. I have to be careful when I say he doesn't care about our comfort. Let me be clear. He's the provider of our comfort, but our comfort's very different than what we thought it was in the world. And see, here's Jesus coming, and he's born to what we're going to find out is very poor family, to working class, lowly people. Remember Galilee, Nazareth, people said, is anything coming good out of there? Like, there's nothing good there. And now they're in Bethlehem, and he's born. They're like, we have no room inside. You can go outside to like, it was kind of house structure, but they kept like animals. It's like a barn, right? It's not that perfect little wood nativity thing that you see like in people's yards, right? It's cute. It's a good sediment, but it's not that, right? It's this it's some kind of area with walls and stuff. But when it says manger, it's a feeding trough. This is something they fed the animals out of. It's smelly. It's stinky. It's gross. And the cloth, it says that they wrapped them in cloth, plural, because they were just torn sheets of cloth. They just wrapped them with like this left, it's like leftover stuff. He's not inside the, 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 the main building. He's outside in a trough wrapped in like rags. And I go, this is, this is insane, right? <laughs> like, th- that might be fitting for a wretch like me, but not for the Lord, right? But here's the deal. Jesus always identified with the sinner. Even though he was perfect, even though he was righteous, we think next week we're going to see the baptism of Jesus. He had no reason to be baptized. He was perfect. He had no sin to be washed of. But he said, I'm going to identify with the sinner that I'm saving. I'm going to set the example that you can be righteous and you can be faithful when you just obey the word of God. The cross itself, he had no business being on the cross, but it was our sins that put him there and he identified in our place, amen? And so even in this, here's this lowly birth that's here of God incarnate, and it reminds me of Hebrews 4.15, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. And so there's times when we might think, man, the Lord doesn't know what it's like to not have money in the bank. (laughs) This is really hard to trust you, God. It's like, Maybe Jesus laying in rags in a feeding trough. Like, are you serious? Right? Or like, Lord, you just don't know what it's like to be hungry. Dude, poor. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, well, probably you could have just turned the rocks into bread. He's like, no, I didn't. Right? <laughs> he set the example over and over that you trust the Father. You trust the Lord. You obey him. I think it's, it's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His whole life was about being humble, obedient, and taking that lowly position so that he could redeem us. Because again, we couldn't redeem ourselves. He had to do it this way. This is how it was supposed to happen. And there's even something that's kind of interesting. Jesus could have chosen any path. I mean, technically speaking, he chose to be poor. I think that's huge. I think so many times we as Christians go, I I don't want to, I'm not going to worship money, but Lord, it'd be way easier if you just gave me a lot of money, right? It's not the case. Jesus says, look at, I'm telling you, it's better when you have no place to rest your head. It's better when you rely upon the Lord. And that's a hard statement for me because here I am in a really comfortable house right now. And I'm still like, Lord, but I need this thing. I need that thing. And the Lord's like, you don't need any of that. You'll be blessed if I give you those things. Praise the Lord when the Lord blesses us with things. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we worship those things, when we seek those things over the Lord, the Lord says, you don't need them. And so it's just a good reminder, right? But speaking of lowly, look at verse 8 through 14. It says, 
Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. See, this is like the Christmas carols that we sing about, right? It's really cool. And we sing and we're like, oh, this is so neat and lofty and awesome. The first people that the message is given to are a few shepherds out in a dark field. Shepherds, like that word in their culture was synonymous with thief. If you call someone a shepherd that wasn't a shepherd, you're just calling them a thief. Like it was known that shepherds at night, they would steal things from their master that they were hired by. And so here are these shepherds, not guys of what you would expect a great reputation of big loftiness. It's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees that ran the temple. It's the shepherds out in the field. And that just strikes me because this is the message of the gospel, that it's for the lowly. It's for those that are just committed, I believe, to do the lowly things like being a shepherd. That was like the most despised thing, right? To be a stinky, dirty man that works with stinky, dirty sheep. <laughs> Which side note, I love that Acts 20, 28 tells us like leaders of the church, basically what we are, we're shepherds. <laughs> like check yourself before you get all fancy and think that you're so cool for like being a pastor, a shepherd. Because really what you're doing is you're like, you're just taking care of flock but it's his flock. He says, I purchased it with my own blood. So you better do a good job. And so in this case, they're out there, they're faithfully doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they went to work like any other night, right? They're out in the field, it's dark out. And then all of a sudden just here's this angel. <laughs> and I love it that it says they were greatly afraid. Like that's an understatement. Anytime we see that in the Bible, when an angel shows up, we've heard descriptions of angels. In this case, it seems like he's taking the form of a man. It's probably Gabriel because Gabriel has been, involved with the announcements of the birth of Christ and everything we've seen. Even in Daniel 2, he was the one giving the announcement to Daniel that Jesus was going to come someday. Um, it seems like Gabriel is like assigned to the, the Jesus account, right? So he's here, I believe, showed up. And these guys are out there and they see this glory. It's the same word that's used in Acts 7.55 when Stephen looks into heaven and sees God, right? That same glory that he sees. This is heavenly glory. And these guys are just terrified. It's actually in the Greek. The word for fearful is, is megas, which is like mega upon mega. They're super scared. <laughs> and so they're mega, they're mega afraid. <laughs> and they're standing there like, this is no good. And again, when you see an angel like this and you're a shepherd, remember their reputation is like, dude, you guys are no good. For all we know, these guys were thieves. These guys were bad news. We don't know much about them. That's quite possible. That's why they aren't working some other job. They're out here because they aren't trusted by people. That's possible speculation, but when an angel shows up, they might be thinking, dude, we're dead. This angel is going to kill us for being unrighteous. And the angel says, don't worry. This is actually really good news of great tidings. that's going to be to all people and see that all people is key to us. Because again, I think I said this last week, I don't think we have any Jewish people in here. I think we're all Gentiles, right? We don't practice this old Jewish thing. This is to all people. And we know this because we live this through the power of the spirit that we've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. 
people can try to tell us, oh, well, you're not a Zionist Jew. You're not this, you're not that. I've had people argue with me because I'm an Italian, white, Irish guy, right? You're not Jewish. Well, it's okay. They're like, oh, no, 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 you don't know. I'm like, I do know because I've experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit, the changing sanctification power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I know that Jesus came and has delivered from the greatest enemy, sin and death. Amen. Amen. And so this is to all people. And it's also the fact that he says, look, it, there's, there's a baby that's born out here. And it's going to be a servant. This is the promise that was from Isaiah 9, 6, right? It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And see, this is the fulfillment of that, that the child will be born. The Messiah is not just going to show up as a grown man. Some people thought that and they didn't know the scriptures. Same thing as today, right? Like people have misconceptions about what God is doing and who God is because they don't read the word. Jesus always said, like, have you not read? Right? That was always his check statement to like the, the Pharisees. What are you talking about? Have you not read the Bible? <laughs> and in this case, it's like people thought that maybe the Messiah would just show up as this big, strong, like Saul type character. But it's like, man, he's coming as a child. And this message is going to save the lowly. I'm giving it to the lowly first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so this announcement's given. And I mean, they're standing here hearing that the glory, glory should be to God because peace is coming to earth. I believe that's the peace. We know it's not the kingdom yet. That's coming later. That's the millennial reign of Jesus. It's going to bring peace on earth. Peace over sin. Peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross the first time the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so it's his goodwill towards men. We didn't deserve it. It's his goodness being poured out on us. And I think we can all agree on that, right? I know I don't deserve this. No offense, but I know you guys don't deserve it either. As nice and wonderful as you are, as better than me as you are, you don't deserve it either. We're sinners. Every one of us. Remember, Mary needed a savior. Mary was a sinner just like us. But the Lord in his goodness redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And so it says in John 1, 12, as many as received him to those who believe upon his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so that's the message, the gospel message, the good news is that if we believe upon Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We are saved. Romans 10 tells us that. And so look at 15 through 20. It says, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying, which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those, at those things, which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And so this is us, man, I believe. A bunch of like lowly, I use this term a lot for myself, no offense, knuckleheads, right? Just a couple of lowly knuckleheads working out in a field. They don't expect this. The glory of the Lord shows up with an angel. They're like, this is crazy. We're going to die. He's like, no, you're going to be saved. <laughs> That's the good news of this message. You believe it? Go seek it out. And everything goes away. Like they just ascend back into heaven and it's darkness again in the field. Like they need to make a good movie out of this. I think a quality movie. I don't know if you guys watch like The Chosen, 
It's a really cool series. Download the app, Chosen app. It's a free app. You can watch it. It's all about, it's like eight episodes about Jesus coming and it's the beginning of his ministry. And it's really well done. Uh, it just came out a couple of years ago. I'm hoping they get to this story. Maybe they go back and like do like a prequel of Jesus' birth because it's really good production. It's not cheesy. Like, no offense, most Christian movies are really cheesy. This is really good quality stuff. And I say that because like, you look at this scene and you got to imagine it like a movie. David Guzik's one of my favorite pastor teachers. He always talks about running the movie in your head. And these guys are in a field. They're looking at the glory. It just disappears. They're in darkness again. They're like, oh my gosh. So what do we do now? <laughs> like we heard this message. Do we go actually seek this and see the realness of that experience? Said, man, there's something real. My heart was beating in my chest when I heard this message. I mean, we know this, right? When we came to the Lord, we heard that gospel and it was like our heart was going to jump out of our chest. The people that come down on the field at like a harvest crusade, they all say, man, I knew that guy was talking to me. That was for me. I had to go seek this out. And so what they do, they have the wisest response ever. They're like, dude, let's go find out if this is true. <laughs> let's go seek. And see, the Lord always said in the word, he said in, in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And he said in Isaiah 55, 8, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And see, these shepherds are uneducated, right? In the sense of like godly spiritual things, it would seem like. They have a lowly reputation. They're blue-collared workers. And they're like, man, we don't have the clout to be dealing with things of God. But praise the Lord, he doesn't require that. All he requires is sincere like inquisition, right? Like, oh man, I just want to go see if this is true. I just want to go seek after the Lord. And how good is the Lord to actually respond when you seek? I mean, you just sit down with the word and say, all right, Lord, if you're real, right? I think about the initial time you stand, you're like, all right, Lord, like, show me. And you start reading, you're like, oh my gosh, I feel naked and undressed. This is no good. <laughs> like, I'm embarrassed. Lord, what is happening? This is just a book, right? It's more in a book. It's the living, powerful word of God. And see, these guys in the field, they, they got told, this is what's happening. Now go seek into it. Go look at it. And so they go from the field. They say the field's probably only like three quarters of a mile from where Jesus was actually at in the manger. So they go out, they go into Bethlehem. And remember they're told, hey, go look for a baby that's wrapped in swaddling cloths laying in a manger, a feeding trough. See, this is not a usual thing, even in their culture. You're not gonna go to the hospital <laughs> and find hundreds of troughs filled with babies. This is a weird thing that's happened. It's a very lowly, almost, uh, I don't know, insulting thing. To say, hey, my baby was born in a trough, but see, it's a sign of the Lord to say, this is my son. He's humble. He's lowly, just like you. Go seek him, seemingly lowly, but actually the king of kings. And so they go out and they start seeking. And when they get there, they actually see that the word of God has been proven true. See, they wouldn't know that if they didn't seek out the word of God, right? How many times we've been told in the Lord a promise that we just can't really believe because we know how miserable we are. We know how incapable we might be. But the Lord says, man, if you go seek this out, I'm going to show you that I'm good to perform my promises. His providence is at work. And he says, come out and see it. And imagine when these shepherds walk into this crowded like thoroughfare that is this outdoor place. Because remember, everyone's going to get numbered of the line of David. They're all family. This is like a giant family reunion with generations of people there. There's, it's busy. It's crazy. And there's a baby laying in a feeding trough. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's the baby. And they go over and they start talking to Joseph and Mary. And they're like, look it, the Lord told us that this is going to be the one 
who is bringing good news and good tidings to all people, not just the Jews, but to everyone. And I think that is why Joseph and Mary, they can't even process. Like it says, Mary pondered these things and put them in her heart. She knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but I think there was a lack to understand of what that full ministry was. She's like, oh, I'm having the child that's going to be like a deliverer, like, I don't know, like Samson maybe, or David that's going to be like big and strong and like fight people and like win for us. These shepherds are like, hey, look, we were in a field and an angel came and said, he's going to save like everyone, everyone that's willing, <laughs> everyone that wants that peace, everyone wants that goodwill. If they put their faith in it, they're going to be saved. And so I think Mary's like, this is, this is getting really wild. <laughs> and so we see the birth of the Savior, but then that story kind of wraps here at verse 21. We begin a new section that's like the presentation of the Savior. And so look at 21 through 24. It says, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so verse 21 tells us that they had the baby, they had Jesus circumcised. We talked about this last week with John the Baptist, how his parents were obedient to the law, right? You went and did this on the eighth day because it was commanded originally in Genesis 17 to Abraham. And then it was reinforced by Moses in the law in Leviticus 12. So when you have a baby, you have a male baby, obviously, you get them circumcised on the eighth day. And so they did that in Bethlehem, most likely, because it was eight days. They probably didn't leave earlier than that for Bethlehem. They do the circumcision there, and it says that they named him Jesus. Remember, we're told both in Matthew 121 and we were told in Luke 1 that his name was to be Jesus. Not a family name. We talked about this last week with, like John, with, uh, with John. They're like, why is he being named John? Your name's Zacharias. You don't name your kid John. This is weird. There's no family member. Same thing with Mary. There's no Jesus in their family. But Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, right? And do you think about Moses who represented the law, led the people to the edge of the promised land, but Joshua led them into the promised land. Jesus, the law will only take you so far, right? It can make you somewhat, you can try to be good in the law. You're never going to do it. You're never going to hold it. But Jesus comes and leads you into the promised land because he fulfills it. He leads you in. And Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. So here he is, Yahweh is salvation. Christ is not his last name, but a title, right? So Jesus, Christ, Christ is the anointed one, the servant of God, right? The chosen one. So we have the salvation of the Lord, the chosen one, Jesus Christ here. And we're just seeing that as good spiritual parents, they're actually obeying the commands of the Lord. They're training up their child in the way that he should go, that he would fulfill the ministry. Because honestly, what if Joseph and Mary... Just don't train Jesus in anything God. They don't take him to temple. They don't take him to those things. The Lord's providence is awesome. He'll take care of it. But there's a realness for us, practically speaking, that our kids aren't Jesus, okay? We, we act like they are sometimes, but they're not. We need to raise them in the ways of the Lord so they'll grow up and actually walk in the promises that we've put over them. And so Mary and Joseph say, man, we're going to train him in those things and lead him. Um, so in 22 and 24, then it says the days of her purification were complete. Uh, Leviticus tells us uh, that she would have to wait 33 days, Leviticus 12, after the birth to go into the temple. They had a lot of things about blood and everything, right? We know 
Yeah, bloody experience birth. Okay, sorry, sorry, Susan. So really, it's this deal. Everyone in here's everyone in here's a mom. You know what it's like. There's a reality where like you can't come in the temple till you're like clean. That's it. And so 33 days was the period to wait. And when you came in at that point, that was when they would have the dedication of the baby. Basically, they're dedicating the baby. And it says, we're doing this for every firstborn son because the Lord says they belong to me. That's a quote from Numbers 3.13, I believe it is, where the Lord said, since I spared all the firstborn of Israel when I sent over the in, in the Passover, right? The angel of death went over and took out all of the firstborn males of Egypt, right? But when they put the, the blood over the door, the Israelites were spared, right? So he says, since I spared the firstborn, I get the firstborn. They're mine forever. And it's going to remind you of the Passover. And so that's the first thing. But also that they would be called to serve the Lord. But later the Lord would call the Levites to just fulfill that in the ministry in the temple. So basically it was like, hey, you know that these kids belong to me. The Levites are doing the temple duties, but the firstborn should serve me. They, all the children should serve me because of my goodness, right? That's basically what the Lord's saying. That's what we do as parents. We dedicate our babies. We say, hey, we're giving this baby right back to the Lord that he would walk in his ways. And so that's basically what they're here doing at this point. But there is an interesting note. There was a sacrifice that was required. Leviticus 12, 8 told us that you had to bring like a lamb to be, to be given as the sacrifice for sin offering when you had your child. It was like, here's what we're going to do. And it, it completed the purification. They didn't have a lamb because they didn't have money to get a lamb. They brought two turtle doves, which is the cheapest bottom rung thing that the Lord allowed you to give. It was like fractions of a penny to buy these things. And so the fact they brought these, Luke makes that note to let us know, man, Jesus came poor. Jesus in all of his riches and glories laid those things down so that we can have riches and glories in him, right? It says in the word, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich, 2 Corinthians 2.8. This is the fulfillment of that. Man, I could have chosen any family, <laughs> but I came poor. You're going to see that on the King of Kings. I'm going to give you all of my riches and glory. And so it's really exciting to see that in, the, in, this, in this chapter. Right from the beginning, the Lord just doing everything. Um, identifying with the sinner. It reminds me of Isaiah 53, 12. It says that he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And see, we're the transgressors. It wasn't Jesus's sin that put him on the cross, right? It was our sin. And he says, I know I don't... <laughs> I don't need to do this for my sake, but I'm doing it for your sake because I love you. And I want as God, the son, he wants to bridge us in and bring us into eternal glory with him. Amen. And so it's so exciting to see right from his birth, this is what's happening. And so we're going to quickly look through this stuff. You guys doing good? Yeah. All right, let's keep going. I hope you guys are still online. Hey, you're online still. That's good news. All right. So <laughs> All right, verse 25 through 35. We're going to read through it and just kind of break it down. We have this man named Simeon who's a prophet. And it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So imagine now, okay, remember Mary's still wrestling and pondering the idea that her baby's going to save all of the world, not just be the Messiah. She's still trying to put this all together. They're just submitting to the things of God, obeying the word of God, going and dedicating the baby at the temple. And in walks this, this old man who's just and devout. So he's a good man. He believes the Lord and he shows up and he says, this is the baby. This is the baby the Lord promised that I would see the Messiah. They don't know this guy, it seems like. I don't know. Maybe he's a, he's a, a, a regular. He's always at the temple, maybe. It seems like he's just in devout. But they aren't expecting someone to be in the spirit, led to the temple that day by the spirit, to find the baby, the baby in the spirit, and to say, this is the one who's going to take care of the Gentiles and the Jews. He's repeating the same thing as the lowly shepherds had. They said, man, he's going to save all people. And see, it's awesome because when the shepherds left, they left rejoicing and praising God, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ should make us worship and praise. Here's Simeon. He's like, man, I've seen Jesus. I'm going to worship and praise. For us, we've seen Jesus. We live in the power of the spirit of Jesus. We should be proclaiming his praises everywhere we go. And so Simeon here, he shows up and it's, it's pretty funny because here he is. He's, I imagine him walking over and it says he took the baby in his arms. Like imagine just holding your baby. He's just like, hey, give me that baby. This is awesome. You're so, who's this old man taking my baby, right? And he's like, this is the one Simba moment, right? Like Lion King, he's holding the baby in the air. He's like, this is the baby that's going to become the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's going to first, it's interesting here. He says, I can now go die in peace because I've seen Jesus. I think that's us too. We can die in peace. We may fear like dying, but we don't fear death anymore. I hope that makes sense. We don't fear what's after. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us. So in this case, he's like, dude, I've seen Jesus. I can die good now. <laughs> and that's so exciting. The spirit told him that he would see that. And for us as well, when we see Jesus, we have that confidence. And then he says, he's a light to, be, to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Notice the order of that of that statement. He says the Gentiles before the Israelites in that statement. This is groundbreaking in regards to the Messiah when they hear this, because we know the revelation came to the Israelites first, right? When Jesus showed up, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed and desired to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks. But you remember what he said after that? He says, you rejected me. I wanted to, but you wouldn't have it. And remember, he tells the disciples in, in, in the Great Commission, Matthew 20, he says, hey, go out to all the ends of the earth and take this message. The parable of the wedding invitations, right? When I don't know the actual name, that's what I call it. But he gives out the wedding invitations in the story. And he's like, dude, no one's taking, no one's coming to the wedding. I'm just going to go out and invite strangers now. They're going to have to put on the right clothes for the wedding, but they can come in after that. The idea of Gentiles being sanctified through Jesus Christ are now going to come into the promise that the Jews didn't take. And also, not just that they didn't accept it, but they rejected it. And that's the order. The revelation 
I think about Paul going out to every city he went to. He went to the synagogue first. They would often reject him. And then he'd go out to like the locals, <laughs> go out to the marketplace and just talk to Greeks and Romans and Gentiles, right? So this is the same thing. The idea was, man, he, it's going to come to the Jews. And remember, this, you don't believe in replacement theology. The church did not become Israel. The church is the church and Israel is Israel. The Lord will still deliver Israel. Romans eleven twenty six tells us this. That in the last time, when they, they, they're going to buy into the Antichrist as a nation. But the Lord's going to come and deliver them. Those that trust in Jesus, he's going to show up. He's actually going to split them out of olives and he's going to actually physically deliver them. And they're going to be the people that live in that millennial kingdom that we will rule and reign with Jesus in. Like that's insane, right? To think about. But there's a program for Israel. There's a program for the church. Neither one replaced the other. And Jesus is going to fulfill his promise. Amen. And so we see this given. And the last thing that to note here, imagine Mary thinking, man, this is awesome. We're dedicating our baby here. This baby that the Lord has given us, it's going to be the Messiah. I'm so like, there's an excitement of like, man, I'm so blessed to have this baby. This is true. But Simeon says, hey, I'm just going to let you know, you're going to have like a sword go through your soul because of this child. And you're like, this is kind of a downer, man. Like we're here having a good time, Simeon. What's your problem, right? But he's saying, I mean, Mary's going to live the worst experience, the worst nightmare of any parent. She's going to watch her child be killed. She's going to watch. She's at the crucifixion. Remember, Jesus talks to John and says, hey, take care of your mother now. That My mother's your mother now. She was there at the cross. None of us as parents ever want to experience such a thing. But here's the deal. This is the plan. We, it's necessary. You'll still be blessed because, Mary, you don't know. There's a sword that's going to run through your soul. But three days later, that Jesus is going to resurrect. He's going to prove himself to be king of kings. He has the power, like John 10, 18 says, to lay down his life and take it up again at his own desire because he's, he's God. But still, it's hard. And just a reminder to us, we're blessed to have Jesus, but there's times when it is difficult. And I don't know how to put it in a practical comparison, but there's difficulties in belonging to Jesus and the joy that is in Jesus. There's sometimes practical things in this world that make it hard and make it like suffering. But the Lord would tell us, that's okay. I promised you tribulation, <laughs> right? John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Your peace is in me. And so we see that. And then remember in their law, you needed two or three witnesses to confirm truth, right? So Simeon shows up. He's the first witness. Look at this next section with Anna, 36 to 39. It says, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she came, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So here's another witness, the second witness that's coming to confirm, hey, this is Jesus. He's the one. I love this because now we have, so far it's just like, it seems like almost just men mostly. Like women so far have been here to have the babies. And there's a way that you could say, well, in a chauvinistic way, you'd be like, oh, well, women are just like these servitude models. And the men are the ones that proclaim all these things. Here's a woman who's filled with the spirit prophesying that Jesus is being born. And now again, there's order in the church and we respect that order. But man, women, men, Jesus is the savior of all of us. And that's what's happening here. Anna comes in, she's of great age. So she's been like, it, it depends how you do the math here. No one knows how to do the math exactly. Says so she's of a great age. 
I believe if you do the math, she's at least 100 years old. <laughs> she's probably like 105 years old. It seemed like she got married probably between 14 and 21. She lived with her husband for seven years. Then he died and she was a widow for 84 years. <laughs> so that's a long time, right? She's very old. And here's the deal. When you're a widow of 84 years, I got to think you probably have a reason to be bitter against God. You probably have a reason to feel unfulfilled because the love of your life has died 84 years ago. But the difference for Anna is that she took that time that she had and she devoted unto the Lord. And instead of getting bitter, she got joy. And in that devotion she gave him the Lord was fulfillment. And so how many times we think, man, I need some answer here on earth to fulfill me, to find joy. She faithfully served the Lord. First Timothy talked about like real widows in chapter five of first Timothy. Like if you're a real widow, like you don't have kids to take care of you, you don't have anything, go live at the temple or go serve at the temple. They'll take care of you. You pray and you fast and you provide for the people that are walking in those relationships that are living in that. You can be a blessing to them. And see, so the Lord had purpose even for an old widowed woman. <laughs> I think that's so many things that people go, well, hey, I'm too old to serve the Lord. I've had too much trauma to serve the Lord. I'm a woman. This is a man's world, right? No, we know that this is the case. Like the Lord is ready to use anyone and everyone who is willing to serve him. And when we do, we walk away with joy. <laughs> that's why I sang this song this morning. Like, this passage is all about the joy that Jesus brings. When you lay your eyes upon Jesus, you're going to worship. You're going to be excited. And that's the case with Anna. She tells everyone, this is the redemption we've been waiting for. He's going to redeem us. Galatians 4, when the right time has come, he's going to redeem us. This is all fulfilled. It's all prophesied. And we walk and live in it. Amen. Amen. And so look at this last section. This is where uh, we just get some notes from Luke. It's interesting because we don't get these notes in the other synoptic gospels about Jesus's childhood. I want to make one note. Don't read. Uh, you can read them for fun, I guess, but I, I wouldn't suggest it. Like the book of Thomas, <laughs> all these apocrypha books that have these weird stories of Jesus, like turning clay birds into like living things. Stuff. The Bible tells us in John two, that his first miracle was turning water to wine, right? There's a lot of weird stuff out there. Luke gives us the only notes that we need to know about Jesus, that he grew up like a normal child and he was completely obedient. He was perfect. It didn't mean that at age five, he was like a 40-year-old with wisdom. He was just a perfect five-year-old. <laughs> when he was 12, he was the perfect 12-year-old, right? So he was a regular child that grew up. He was human, God incarnate. And so just an interesting note, because Luke's going to talk about it. Look at verse 39 and 40. It says, and when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And I think it's just a quick note, but to me, these are the kinds of things we pray for for our children, right? Our kids are kids. They're, they're human beings. We know they're going to be flawed. They're going to make mistakes. We try to set the best examples we can. But at the end of the day, my prayer, I pray over my boys every night is, Lord, fill them with your spirit and let them love you all their days. This is Jesus. Jesus is different because he's perfect. But the reality is he grew in favor with man because he loved God. He had a heart for his father. And so men wanted to be around Jesus. He grew up. He was strong. He had the grace of God upon him. And I just think it's an interesting note. Luke gives us that, and it jumps from him. Remember, he's growing as a child. It jumps from there to 12 years later in verse 41. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit decided we don't need to know much about Jesus' childhood. But what we know is that he was perfect. He was perfect. He was real human being and perfect. So hopefully that gives us some understanding there. But look at 41 um, onward. It says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know about it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. This is like such a practical, funny story when you really look at the context of this, right? Parents, here you are, right? You've been entrusted from the Lord with a child. You're doing your thing, right? They go to Jerusalem every year, and they've always done this. But this year, Jesus is 12. So he's of the mature age. He's considered a man now. Bar mitzvah, right? He's a, he's a man. You're commanded in Scripture to go to three feasts every year, right? You're commanded to go to Pentecost, uh, Tabernacles, and to Passover. So when you're 12, you have to start going to these things. And so they've never taken Jesus with them before. So this is the first year he goes, it would seem, and at least in the sense where he's going to keep the law. Maybe he's gone as a baby with them, but he didn't participate in anything. This is where he starts fulfilling the law for us, right? Because he's called to fulfill it at this point. They go, they're hanging out there. They're doing all the things, the Passover. And remember, the whole Passover points to Jesus himself, right? They have the true Passover lamb with them. They walk in there, they go and they do it. And as they go to leave, there's this giant caravan. Remember, millions of people went to Jerusalem. So we got to give some slack here, okay, before I totally make fun of them. But some slack that there's millions of people in Jerusalem and their family and their city people that are Jews. There's a big old group. The whole city went together. So they're walking. There's a caravan going. They're a day out. And they're like, hey, it's time to go to bed. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's probably with his friends down the street, right? Let's go find him. Oh, he's probably with Aunt So-and-so. Oh, let's go look. Maybe he's with Elizabeth and Zechariah. They can't find Jesus. And imagine, I don't know if you guys have been there, but when you, you're in like Target or something, your son goes and walks off to go look for a toy. And you're like, oh my gosh, he's been kidnapped, right? Someone, the word, Your mind goes to the worst places in the world immediately. It shows our wicked hearts, by the way. Um, and you're just like, oh no, oh no, I've lost. They lost Jesus, the son, the son of God. They lost him. They lost the Passover lamb. And they're like, oh no, we're a day's journey away from where he was. So they go one day all the way out. They have to travel one day back. That's day two. And when they get there, they spend a whole day. It says three days they were looking for him. So that's the totality in the languages. One day out, one day back, one day searching for him. And when they come in, here he is in the temple. There's that comfort in, as a parent. You're like, oh, God, thank you. He's safe. <laughs> thank you, God. You're not going to strike me for losing the Messiah that you sent <laughs> so perfectly, so perfectly through everything we thought. The very first time we took him. We lost him. This is terrifying. And so they run up and he's talking to the men that are supposed to know everything about everything religion wise. And in the Greek, it tells us they were besides themselves with amazement at the understanding that Jesus had at 12 years old. And he's sitting there talking with them. He's not panicked. <laughs> they were panicked, but he's not. He's just hanging out doing what he's called to do. Teach people about the kingdom. Talk about the kingdom. And so they come up and they're like, Jesus, 
what? Do you know what you just did to us? And there's this thing as a parent, right? You're like, God, please don't let them be dead or something. Then you get there. You're like, I'm going to kill you for this, right? <laughs> so it's very funny. She shows up and she's like, what are you doing? Do you know how anxious you had me and your father? And see, that's where the record scratch hits. <laughs> Jesus says, you should have known. I'm in my father's house doing my father's business. And it says that Mary couldn't comprehend that statement. Commentators believe the reason is maybe Mary hasn't told Jesus how she conceived him yet. Maybe she's been playing that Joseph is your dad for now. We're going to tell you later because we don't want you to live under this weird thing. The rumors that you got, like people don't believe that he's the, the miraculous conception. So she's just trying to play house right now. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Joseph's his dad. Yeah, sure. He's his dad, stepdad, right? But yeah, he's his dad. When he says, hey, you should have known that I would be in my father's house doing his business. There's this moment of like, oh my gosh. <laughs> he just, like, he's corrected. Let's be clear. He's not being sarcastic. He's not being rude. He was, dis he was perfectly obedient, not disobedient. But he's correcting her statement. He says, well, you and my father, my father's here. This is his house. <laughs> I'm doing his business. And this is big because at 12 years old, this is when Jewish children began to learn the craft of their father. So when, you know, Jesus was a carpenter because Joseph was a carpenter, he would learn carpentry beginning at 12. The day that he goes to the temple, he's 12 years old, right? He's learning his father's business. It's so cool, right? Like how the Lord just does this. He's like, I'm here, man. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why were you so panicked? <laughs> I think there's even a foreshadowing in this because it says three days, right? Think about how worried his disciples and his mother were for three days when Jesus died upon that cross. They're like, he's gone. He's dead. It's terrifying. Three days later, he's like, why are you worried? I was with my father. <laughs> like, that's the reality, right? We know that Jesus went and revealed himself to those that were being held captive. And those that believed came in, but he went to be in paradise. Don't believe anything that says Jesus like spent time in hell. That's, that's heresy. There's nothing in the Bible for that. He revealed himself to those that were waiting in, 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 the, in the bosom, right? They're waiting in, in Abraham's bosom and comforted. But he revealed himself to say, I'm the fulfillment. Even those that didn't believe, he said, you should have believed. That was a fulfillment. But I'm not going to be punished in hell for this. The cross was where it was finished. He said, it is finished. Amen. And so he went and went with the father. Same thing as here. He was with the father in the father's house. And so you got to think Mary's just like, this is insane. This kid really knows everything. Imagine as a parent, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> He's officially going to always be looking at us. And he's like, it's starting to register. He has godly divine intellect. That would make me a little uncomfortable as a parent, I feel like, when I tell my kid to do something because I think I'm right. And what if they're like, no, it's not right. I'm God. <laughs> I know better. That would be a difficult thing. So she's wrestling with all of this. But I look at all of it and look at the last two verses and we're, we're done with this chapter. It says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so this is what we're talking about. Jesus himself came down. And I got to, this is a section that really strikes me because I think like all of us love childhood, right? Like we love the idea of like, we didn't have our bills yet. I didn't have to worry about letters from the IRS. Like I mentioned earlier, right? We didn't have to worry about that, right? The biggest thing was like, what video game am I going to play today? And just turning my homework in. It's pretty what it is but there's a level where if i'm being honest with you and i think this is a good thing it doesn't knock my parents who are probably watching online but i love them and they raise me in the ways of the lord but there's a reality where i had to submit to anything they said right and there's something that's like man especially at 12 you get that fight or flight kind of thing where you're like i want to go out i want to live i want to fly the nets right i want to leave the coop right i want to go but 
you had to submit yourself to the parents. We feel like that in our own little wretched selves, right? <laughs> Jesus, before being born in the form of a human being, Colossians 2 tells us that he created everything. Everything was made. I'm sorry, Colossians 1. Everything that he had, he made, and it was for him to glorify him. Literally, the world did literally exist for him. He is in control of it all. But yet he humbled himself and came and lived with a poor family in a poor town, living under the law that, by the way, he created essentially, right? Subjected himself to all this, to two flogged parents, human beings, and says, I'm going to live like this for the next 30 years before I go start my ministry. I mean, 30 years of prep for three years of ministry. Think about that. How often I get tired of 30 days of prep, 30 years of prep. And this is for Jesus. And he just faithfully and obediently submits to his parents. And it just says he grows in grace and he grows with like men are loving him because, man, when you're submissive to, to, to God, men are going to love you because you are like I'm just talking relationally. They may not agree with you, but when you treat people, when you love people as yourself for no gain or anything of yourself. You just love people because Jesus had no gain in the sense of like. All he had was eternal gain with us, and he wanted that. That's why he came. But we'd say he lost when he came, right? In the sense of he lost all those riches, all that power, all that sovereignty. In some form, he added humanity to it. And it's not that he gave that up, but he added humanity, and that limited what he could do with it. <laughs> Man, we sometimes we start to get so frustrated with having to obey our God, the Father, right? Lord, what are you doing? Why are you prepping me right now? What is, what is this? Why is this? Again, Hebrews 4.15, Jesus says, I've been there. I've done that. Trust the Father. Trust his promises. He's going to bring it to fruition. Be on his side. See, this is what we come back to at the beginning. My wise father-in-law who says, you, remember, when things are good, it's because we're on his side. Man, today, we got to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Be on his side. Because, man, it's, it's a blessing to us, but it glorifies God. It edifies the body of Christ. It testifies to the world that this is all true. And man, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Like Anna, like Simeon, like the shepherds, proclaiming the praises of God, being zealous for good works like Titus 2.14 talks about. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, Lord, and for just all that you've done for us, Lord. And Father, we just pray that you would just fill us with your spirit to the point of overflow, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us as you see fit, Lord. And Father, just right now as we're praying, Lord, I, I, I'm looking around this room and I feel like I know everyone in this room, they trust in you, they believe in you, they put their faith in you. But Lord, there are people online this morning that I don't know where they stand with you, Lord. And so Father, I pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God, you raise him from the dead and that they would trust you, Jesus. They would trust in your work. And so if you're online this morning, even if you are in this room, but if you're online this morning, you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to follow him, to obey him, to be on his side. You can repeat this prayer right where you are. You just say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sin, to give me a brand new heart, to fill me with your spirit, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.